Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Uh, the privilege of, of speaking to you once again. Um, a lot of, most of you probably didn't know I'd be speaking a second Sunday in a row, so you didn't have a chance to find something else to do. So you're trapped. You're here. So let's go ahead, shall we? Um, I want to continue in the series on the Psalms uh, that Pastor Andy started and we talked about last week as well. Um, we're in Psalm 5 this week, talking about Psalm 5. Uh, Psalm 3, 4, and 5 are kind of a series. They're all very closely connected to each other. Um, kind of lament-type psalms, uh, prayers or songs that King David wrote or authored, that we, we believe. And um, it's a type of lament where you're um, not only lamenting your own situation, the fact that you're in dire straits right now. Um, for David, it's also what they call imprecatory. How, like, how do you like that word, imprecatory? It may, basically, it means it's a cursing of your enemies type of psalm. Um, and if you've read through the Psalms before, you see that there's quite a number of those in the book of Psalms that we have. Uh, David had an enemies list and people that didn't like him, people that didn't want him. Among them, his own son, Absalom, who we talked about last week and the week before. And those of you who need to be caught up a little bit know that Absalom was one of David's sons, uh, his second oldest son, actually. And uh, Absalom was a charismatic kind of person and gathered together his own little following of people in Israel. And eventually, um, after the course of a couple years, uh, started a rebellion against his father. He, Absalom wanted to be king instead of his father David. And so he kind of led this rebellion. And Psalms 3, 4, and 5 are David's laments, uh, David's prayers to God uh, during this time when he's on the run, he had to leave the capital of Jerusalem and he had to run away from his own son and all the people that were following Absalom and wanting to take over the kingdom. So we have the same situation that we had in Psalm 3 and 4 here in Psalm 5. Absalom's rebellion is kind of the context. And uh, as David is describing his feelings and describing what he doesn't like about his enemies, um, one of the key words that he uses is they are bloodthirsty. They are after his head. And if he falls into their hands, likely death will be the consequence of that. Um, and in ancient Israel, warfare was indeed quite deadly, up close and personal and deadly, mainly because of the technology they had. Their weapons mainly were swords and spears some bows and arrows, and maybe some horse-drawn chariots. Um, but all of these required you to get close. Even bows and arrows um, only had a range of maybe a couple hundred yards. And so most of the fighting was fairly up close and personal and therefore bloody. And David's um, escape strategy was mainly to stay far enough away out of bow shot from the people that are chasing him to stay alive. So a couple hundred yards, all he has to do is stay that far ahead of them. Goes into, he can go into hiding in places and hide out from them and be relatively safe. Um, now, we compare that to what warfare is like in our situation, and we know that David would have to have a much different strategy. Um, I did a, a quick little Google search, went to uh, Britannica.com and a war history online, a couple of websites, and looked at some of the weapons that have been developed over time of history and looked at the most dangerous and most deadly ones. 
here's a quick rundown just to compare it to what David was facing. Um, one of the first ones was the machine gun. Um, a guy named Hiram Maxim, he was a British inventor and tinkerer, invented the Maxim machine gun around 1884. And uh, it was able to shoot at much further distances than any other gun before and at a much higher rate. They could fire about 500 rounds of bullets per minute at a range of about 2,000 yards or more. And so between 1884, when he invented it, and the beginning of World War I, um, his machine guns were a, a hot seller to all the armies in Europe and across the world. And one of the reasons for the huge numbers of casualties in World War I was because the Germans um, had developed their own version of this Maxim machine gun, and the British and the French had not. So the British and French made charges against the German positions and weren't used to what machine guns could do, and they got slaughtered. Uh, the first battle of the Somme, which was one of the more early war, uh, battles in the war, more than 20,000 British soldiers were killed because their commanders didn't know the dangers of this machine gun. They quickly learned, and that started the trench warfare that persisted throughout the rest of World War I. Um, so th that was a, one of the mo most deadly weapons up until that point of time. Another one that lives with us in our age is definitely nuclear weapons. We know about the atom bomb, the hydrogen bombs, and thermonuclear bombs. Uh, the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima, that was the first atomic bomb that was used in warfare by the U.S. on Japan, killed about 70,000 people that one day during that one blast. And then many more died later from radiation poisoning. Um, the explosion, the explosive yield of that one bomb, they called it Little Boy, uh, was about 15 kilotons of TNT. 15 tons of TNT. Now, after that, of course, we got in an arms race with Russia, and so the United States and Russia were battling to see who could create the biggest bomb, atomic bomb. Uh, the biggest one the U.S. ever created was called the B-41. It had a maximum yield of 25 megatons of TNT. Um, and then the Russians came up with their own. They called it the Tsar Bomba. The Tsar Bomba was the most powerful bomb ever detonated in history. It had a maximum yield of 100 megatons of TNT. When they tested it, they only tested one because it was so huge it wasn't practical to use in actual warfare. You couldn't attach it to a plane unless it was specially modified. But the mushroom cloud that came out of that first test went about as high as 40 miles in the sky. That's seven times taller than Mount Everest. And the fireball that came up could be seen from 600 miles away. Um, it was essentially the bomb to end all bombs, but thankfully it wasn't practical, and so no one has ever tried to put it on an actual um, airplane. Um, another advance in technology and warfare was called the shock cavalry. Um, back in the Middle Ages, um, they, they, there were great advances in horse riding technology. There was the iron stirrup, a war saddle, uh, the bit that you put in the horse's mouth to control them, um, horseshoes, metal horseshoes, and spurs. All of these allowed people to use horses in warfare. And the horses that they bred were, got bigger and bigger and faster and stronger until cavalry became a deadly, a deadly tactic on the battlefield. Uh, the knights that we read about in Europe and then the Mongols under uh, Genghis Khan and Kublai Khan and the Cossacks even later um, all became experts at using cavalry who could travel long distances in a short period of time, strike suddenly, and create quite a deal of damage on villages and other armies. 
Um, and that became like the leading uh, warfare tactic for many years until we found out there were ways to deal with armored uh, knights on horseback. Uh, modern submarines are another major um, warfare tactic and, and tool. By World War I, all the major powers were using submarines, and especially the Germans were effective in using U-boats. They sank about 20, 20 million tons of shipping during World War I. And then in World War II, they continued that same tactic. After World War II, of course, nuclear-powered subs became all the, the rage, and we loaded nuclear missiles on nuclear-powered subs. Um, so now we have um, Ohio-class ballistic missile submarines, and they can carry about 24 Trident missiles. Each one of those missiles has about 10 warheads, and each one of those warheads can be targeted to a different target. So basically, that what they call these submarines are World War II in a can because they can wreak such havoc in such a short period of time from just one single weapon. They're capable of delivering about 8,000 Hiroshima explosions from one submarine from about 1,400 miles away. Now, here's the next one is the common rifle. Um, now, guns were invented back in, in around the 12th century in China, but they were simply like hollow tubes or barrels that were shot around bullet um, from an, the explosion of gunpowder. They were inaccurate, they didn't have a very good range, but they could be deadly up close. Someone decided to rifle the inside of the barrel, that is, put spiral grooves inside the barrel so that it gave a spin to the bullet as it came out, which increased the accuracy and the distance that someone could use a rifle. And again, the tactics, um, the tactics of the generals didn't catch up to the technology. And in our American Civil War, one of the reasons there were so many huge casualties was because the generals didn't realize that these new rifles had such accuracy and could shoot from so far away. And so we have thousands and thousands of people dying in one short battle because of the accuracy of this rifle. Um, in World War II, we developed assault rifles, which were made for up close, but they could fire at a much faster rate, kind of a hybrid between a long-range rifle and a, and a rapid-firing machine gun, which increased. And the AK-47 um, became kind of the model that everyone wanted to have or wanted to um, use. There's about 100 million AK-47s in circulation uh, right about now. And so that is an easy, cheap way to deal death in large numbers. The next one is probably one of the more primitive versions of weaponry. That's fire. Back as far as the first century AD, the Greeks developed some way of shooting fire with some kind of a chemical um, composition that they kept in secret. In fact, nobody today even knows what the exact formula was. But they were able to shoot fire from ship to ship or from uh, a machine over the walls of a fort to the, to the inside and then create a fire from there. In World War II, the United States developed napalm, which is a combination of chemicals that makes gasoline thicker and easier to throw or shoot. And so napalm, bombs, and missiles, and flamethrowers became a leading means of, of weaponry during the World War II. Um, napalm killed about 25,000 people in World War II when the United States and, and England bombed the city of Dresden in Germany. And then, of course, before the atom bomb was used in Japan, the United States dropped firebombs on Tokyo, which killed about 100,000 civilians in one raid which is more than the, the atomic bomb did in that one day. Um, the last uh, weapon that I looked up was this one. 
Um, we have a slide of that. That's the mouth, the human mouth. Words and our tongues can create damage that's far greater than any of the weapons that we've just used. They can um, cause immense pain, suffering, and lasting damage. And that's what David writes about in Psalm 5. So we're going to talk about the human tongue or the speech that, we, that comes out of our mouths as well. Now, when we look at Psalm 5, we have to remember that the Psalms are poetry, right? They are Hebrew poetry. They don't necessarily rhyme, but their style of poetry is that um, one idea would be presented in words, and then a, the same idea would pre- be presented in similar words a second time. They call that parallelism. So Hebrew poetry is a way of saying the same thing twice in a row, oftentimes, sometimes three times. But, of course, as a poet, you know, poets are into words. Words are very important to them. They choose the right words to, come, to convey the correct idea, the correct feeling that they want people to receive when they hear or read a poem. So today we're going to um, do what they used to do in sermons, and that is do a little bit of word study. It's kind of gone out of style, and probably for good reason. So today, we're not going to call it word study. We'll, talk, we'll say it's going to be word play. Is that okay? We'll do a little word play today. Um, I want us to look at six words or six phrases um, that are keys to understanding Psalm 5, and they're all in the text of the, of the psalm. Um, take a look at the first three verses here. Can we, do we have three verses all at one time, or we'll read them in a, in a row here? Listen to my words. Oh, words. It's going to be words. Listen to my words, Lord. Consider my lament. This tells us that it's a lament-type psalm. Verse 2, Hear my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my requests before you and wait expectantly. The key word I want us to pull out of this one is the word king. That's our first word. So David is phrasing this psalm as if he were presenting a request to his king, which is God, of course, in this case. Um, it's the normal way that a commoner would bring in a request to any king in the Middle East in the ancient days. David, of course, is the rightful king of Israel, but he's on the run right now. But he knows the protocols of the royal court. And so this psalm is in the form of a plea or a request brought to the king. So he lays his request down before the king. Also later in the psalm, we see that he bows down to the king. And he talks about how his enemies have rebelled against the king, that is God. Um, and all this is stuff that Peter, or Peter, that David is living right now. Um, he's the rightful king and people should be bowing down to him, but he's on the run. And people have rebelled against him. So he's talking to God as if he were a, another king. And so he lays his request before his king and talks about how people have rebelled against God, not just David. Now, one of the responsibilities of kings was to, pro- to provide for his people and protect them. And again, David calls on God to protect him and his people as well. You see, also there's this attitude of expectancy in here. David is on the run right now, but he still has confidence that God can make and will make things right again. And so he waits expectantly. He's not living it right now, but he knows that he can and he will because he trusts in God in a good outcome and that his, he'll be returned to his throne as he should be. His predicament right now is dire, but he knows that God will ultimately establish God's kingdom, and he waits so in confident anticipation. Now, for us, we um, are in the same kind of a situation where we 
perhaps live in dire predicaments. Uh, Our situations might be challenging, troublesome at times. Um, We wait expectantly for God to bring his kingdom. And even when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's our modern version of doing what David is saying here. We are waiting expectantly for you, God, to act, and we trust and believe that it will happen. Okay, word number two, the word evil. Now, in verses four to six, can we have that? Can we get that all squeezed on once? Good. There are seven words or seven word combinations for the word evil. Now, we're going to play a word game, words with friends. I don't know how that game really actually plays, but this is the way we'll do it here. Um, find, a, find a friend, a partner, someone close to you. If you're a regular attender here, make sure there's no one that's sitting by themselves. Um, go, to, go to someone if you need to. Here's your job. Look through these verses that are on the screen and find those seven words for evil, those words or word combinations, okay? So take a minute to do that. See if you can identify seven of them in these three verses here. Talk amongst yourselves. Hmm? Help each other. Anybody have seven yet? Still working on it? Oh, some of us do. Okay, good. Okay, once you find the seven, then I want you to share with each other which one of those words or terms you think is the strongest word for wickedness or evil, okay? Which one generates the most passion or feeling in you, at least, and why, okay? Okay? Did you get a chance to talk about that a little bit? Which one do you think is the strongest word for evil to you? Anybody want to volunteer your response? Bloodthirsty? A lot of folks mentioned that one. Okay. That's what we talked about earlier, right? Anything else? Any other nominees? Arrogant. Okay. Hate? Oh, yes. Um, God's response to this evil, we'll talk about that a little bit later, which is something we need to deal with, right? Okay? Well, um, the NIV version, which is this version, probably isn't as clear as some other versions, but yet you can find the seven combinations there. Uh, Wickedness, evildoers or evil people, arrogant or boasters is another version, 
wrongdoers or people who do wrong, people who tell lies or liars, bloodthirsty, and deceitful. Those are the seven that I found. Um, And it's interesting that when you look at these, um, how many of them have to do with um, speech? Uh, People who boast or the arrogant people, uh, deceitful people, people who tell lies, all has to do with issues of talking or speech. And we'll develop that idea a little bit further. Okay, so we've got seven different words. So David is emphasizing this idea, isn't he? Something about wickedness um, or evil that uh, God is displeased with. And so David struggled, or maybe he didn't struggle, maybe it came easily to him, to combine all of these different words together in these few verses just to talk about how important this issue is. All right, word number three is chesed. Oh, I didn't, I wasn't clearing my throat. That's a Hebrew word. Chesed is a Hebrew word which can be translated different ways. In ours, in verse 7, it says, but I by your great love, great love, that's chesed in Hebrew or in English. By your great love, I can come into your house and in reverence, I bow down toward your holy temple. Now, other translations can say great mercy or tender mercy Uh, One of my favorites is the old-fashioned word, loving kindness. Uh, Or another way of saying it is unfailing love or steadfast love is another good translation of that. Basically talking about God's love that is merciful and can be counted on. Um, God will always be loving. So by your great love or by your loving kindness, I can come into your temple and be in your presence. One commentator said that if any one Hebrew word can describe the character of God, it's probably this word, chesed. God is king, yes, but God is a king whose sovereignty is exercised not with absolute power, but with committed love. And that characterizes the character and the qualities and the essence of God. And so for David, as he's writing these words, he is coming before God in humility and in awe because not of anything that he's done, his achievements, his position as king, but simply because of God's mercy, God's loving kindness. And so he recognizes that here in the middle of this psalm. Okay, fourth word, actually it's a word phrase, is lead me. Verse 8, David says, lead me, Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Basically, David is putting himself there, throwing himself on God's mercy, asking for guidance on what to do, how to deal with this situation, this crisis that he's facing right now. How do we deal with these evil people that are chasing him and have rebelled against him? Um, Basically, he's saying, lead me, Lord. You you need to guide me. I don't know what exactly how to do it or where I'm going or what I'm supposed to do next. Um, And in a sense, it's a way of how we pray, again, in the Lord's Prayer, Thy will be done. Your will be done, God. Um, Guide me and lead me. I need you to take the directions here. Um, It also is reminiscent. It's a positive way of saying the way we say it in the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from, say it with me, evil. Right, and there's the evil issue again. David is asking God to lead him, guide him, not in the way of temptation, but in the way of how he should act and respond to these evildoers. Okay, number five is actually four words I'd like us to look at. It's in, they're all four in verse nine. Do we have verse nine on there? Thank you, good. Not a word from their mouth can be trusted. Their heart is filled with malice. Their throat is an open grave, and with their tongues they tell lies. The four words are all body parts. 
Can you identify them in that verse real quick? They are the mouth, heart, throat, tongues. Three of the four have to do, they are organs of speech. So again, we're back to this issue of speech and words again. Um, another couple of versions, I want to read the same verse in a couple different versions. It kind of helps fill in some of the gaps and maybe gives it a little more color. One from the Amplified Bible. The Amplified Bible just puts in a bunch of synonyms to kind of flesh out or fill out the meanings of the words. Here's how the Amplified Bible um, translates this verse. For there is nothing trustworthy or reliable or truthful in what they say. Their heart is destruction, just a treacherous chasm, a yawning gulf of lies. Their throat is an open grave. They glibly flatter with their silken tongue. And then um, Eugene Peterson's translation, The Message, he puts it this way, and he picks up on this weapon, this, the, the words as a weapon uh, motif. His translation says, Every word they speak is a landmine. Their lungs breathe out poison gas. Their throats are gaping graves. Their tongues slick as mudslides. All of these point to the power of words, our language, the things that we say have power. They deliver great meaning, and they can have great effects on other people. Um, the New Testament book of James, written by one of Jesus' disciples, in, ver- in chapter 3, verses 5 through 11, really fleshes this out in greater detail. Here's what James says. The tongue is a small part of the body, but it make great, makes great boasts. Consider what a, great forest fire, what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire of hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by humans, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? Rhetorical question. We humans are creatures of speech par excellence. Um, we have multiple words that have the same meaning. We have tons of synonyms for all sorts of things for certain situations. For whatever nuance we want to give to what we're saying, we can pick whatever words we want. Uh, we can phrase the same idea directly or indirectly through sarcasm or irony or just subtlety. Um, metaphors are used to convey same ideas without saying it directly as well. Now, those of you who aren't word lovers or English majors, um, maybe you haven't been following this very well, but let's take a little break from that, okay? We'll take a break. And if you're into science and or research or something, I've got a little treat for you here. Just the other day on, um, actually it was published yesterday, but it was printed, I guess, published on Friday, but it appeared uh, yesterday. Um, an article by Lisa Feldman Barrett. She's a professor of psychology at Northeastern University relaying some research that she's um, discovered. And the question, it's a leading question, and the title of her article is, When is Speech Violence? I want to read some excerpts from the article, if you don't mind, and uh, I think they'll give us a little more meat to chew on here with what David is, is guiding us towards. She starts off the article by asking this rhetorical question, <clears throat> What's more harmful, 
someone who threatens to punch you in the nose, or someone actually smashing their face, their fist into your face and breaking your nose. We'd probably say the latter, right? Getting hit, actually. And it brings to mind the old saying that your parents probably told you, sticks and stones can break your bones, but words can never hurt me, right? Well, we don't know that that's always true. And in fact, um, Professor Barrett goes on to say that scientifically speaking, it's really not that simple. So here's what she has to say. I'll just read her, her words here. Words can have a powerful effect on your nervous system. Certain types of adversity, even those involving no physical contact, can make you sick can alter your brain, even kill neurons, and shorten your life. Your body's immune system, here's the science for you science folks, okay? Your body's immune system includes little proteins called pro-inflammatory cytokines because they they cause inflammation when you're physically injured. And under certain conditions, however, these cytokines themselves can cause physical illness. What are those conditions? One of them is chronic stress. We talked about that a little bit last week. Your body also contains little packets of genetic material that sit on the ends of your chromosomes. They're called telomeres. Each time your cells divide, their telomeres get a little bit shorter. And when they become too short, you die. This is normal aging. But guess what else shrinks your telomeres? Chronic stress. So words can cause stress. Prolonged stress can cause physical harm. Therefore, speech, at least certain types of speech can be a form of violence. Scientific findings provide empirical guidance for which kinds of controversial speech cause real harm and which kinds of speech fall within the realm of challenge. And I would insert here like some of the prophetic uh, utterances we find in the Bible or speaking truth to power or challenging or debating someone. Those are the kinds of things that are um, probably okay. In short, this is back to the article. In short, the answer depends on whether the speech is abusive or merely offensive. Offensiveness is not bad for your body and your brain. Your nervous system can withstand periodic bouts of stress, such as fleeing from a tiger, or taking a punch, or encountering an odious idea in a university lecture. Entertaining someone else's distasteful perspective can be educational. When you're forced to engage a position you strongly disagree with, you learn something about the other perspective as well as your own. The process might feel unpleasant, but it's a good kind of stress, temporary and not harmful to your body, and you reap the longer-term benefits of learning. What's bad for your nervous system, in contrast, are long stretches of simmering stress. If you spend a lot of time in a harsh environment worrying about your safety, that's the kind of stress that brings on illness and remodels your brain. That's also true of a political climate in which groups of people endlessly hurl hateful words at one another, or rampant bullying in school, or at work, or at home, or on social media. A culture of constant, casual brutality is toxic to the body, and we suffer for it. Now, I want to inject a personal illustration. I just was talking to my brother Friday night, and he had a perfect example of this. His daughter, my niece... Um, is, had just finished that day, actually signed the final papers of a divorce. Her husband of about five years was, or became, I think was, alcoholic and became abusive, verbally abusive. Uh, no physical abuse occurred that they know about, but the verbal abuse when he would come home drunk was overpowering and overwhelming for her, and it affected their two chil- young children as well. 
And uh, my brother was saying how his daughter was noticeably looked better, had gained weight back, uh, had a better mood, and once this all had, the decision had been made to divorce and leave this abusive husband. And the kicker and kind of the heartbreaker is that her four-year-old daughter just the other day told her, Mommy, I'm glad that you and Daddy are getting a divorce because she had been um, exhibiting some of the behaviors that comes from this constant kind of stress. Um, She would have these, what my brother called meltdowns, uh, fits of crying that would start out of nowhere for no particular reason, and they could not console her or get her to stop crying. Just, you know, frequently, like every other day or something. And those have basically kind of disappeared since uh, my niece separated from her husband, and now that the divorce is final, her daughter is recognizing that from the mouths of babes comes the wisdom that this science is pointing us towards. Well, okay, let me go back to the article. There's a difference between permitting a culture of casual brutality and entertaining an opinion you strongly oppose. The first is a danger to civil society and to our health. The latter is the lifeblood of our democracy. By all means, we should have open conversations and vigorous debate about controversial or even offensive topics. But we must also halt speech that bullies and torments. From the perspective of our brain cells, this is literally a form of violence. So that's the end of her article there. I thought it was pretty instructive, and I was glad I came across it and had to cram it into my sermon here this morning because it was too good not to share with you. Um, Another thing, finally from these verses, we still have that verse up there. Can we put it back up, if we don't mind? Um, There's a connection that's made, and we noticed that there were the four words, mouth, heart, see, what were they? Uh, Throat and tongues. The heart is the one thing that doesn't match the other ones, but yet there is a connection between a person's heart and the words that comes out of a person's mouth. Um, Jesus himself said this in Matthew 15. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. Well, that's the power of words and the destructive power that is a potential for everything whenever we speak. Um, number six, our last set here, is two words, actually. Rebel or rebel. Let me say rebel. I would like that word better. Rebel and refugee. Rebel and refugee. Verse 10. Can we show verse 10 up there, please? Thank you. Declare them guilty, O God. This is Dave's, David's request of God. Now he's getting down to, here's, here's the request I have. Declare them guilty, O God. Let their intrigues be their downfall. Banish them for their many sins, for they have rebelled against you. And then the next verse, please. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may rejoice in you. Surely, Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favor as with a shield. That's the one defensive weapon that they had back in those days was a shield, maybe a helmet. But he's talking about God's protection as a shield for him. Well, the words rebel and rebel appear, and you take refuge, David takes refuge in God. So I want us to talk about rebels and refugees. According to these verses here, we find that 
David at least wants this to be the case, and we may, may, may find that it actually is the case. Rebels will be rejected. He talks about banish them or kick them out or cast them away. So once you're kicked out or banished from your people, you're basically isolated and alone. And in that culture, especially, um, not being part of your tribe or your clan um, was, you know, one of the worst things that could happen to you. So this is what David is asking God to do to those who have rebelled against him and who rebel against God. Uh, Reject them. Rebels will be rejected. But refugees will be able to rejoice. Rejoice and joy show up here in these verses a couple times. You surround them. Let's go back to verse 11, can we? Spread your protection over them that those who love your name may rejoice in you and they'll sing for joy, those who take refuge in God. Um, So here we have uh, a few, six different words or word sets, I think, that gets us to the heart of what David is trying to communicate in this psalm. Um, For us, going forward, we need to think about how this psalm, 5, can be appropriate for us. How do we live into the words that David has spoken or written uh, whatever it was, 3,000 years ago almost. Well, first of all, we're going to have to face some uncomfortable truths um, about God and about ourselves. First thing I want us to talk about or think about is, what does this say about God? What does Psalm 5 say about God and our response to evil? How does God respond to evil? How do we respond to evil? Um, If we look in verses 4 through 6, the words that, we, that David uses to describe God's stance toward evil and evildoers, um, pretty harsh. Uh, he says that God cannot abide with evildoers. God hates, God destroys, God abhors those people who do evil. And David requests that God would declare them guilty and banish them. Um, again, harsh language. And now we don't know whether this is David's request of God or get David's perspective or whether he's stating a fact. This is God's attitude towards evil and evildoers. Well, one way we can talk about this and maybe understand it is to think about this strong language that David uses is a way of communicating the fact that God is not some abstract ground of all being or some unmoved mover or some uh, cosmic force. Um, God is personal. God is Uh, heavily invested in his creation and his people that he created as well. There's a theological word for a God who is not moved by our situations or by human thoughts or feelings, and that is the word impassable. Impassable. That doesn't mean you can't go past him on the highway. It means that God does not have passions, that he's not affected by our plight and our situation. Um, theologically, that's what they talk about. And some folks have tried to say that there is an element of impassibility in God. But David doesn't see it that way. David sees God as passionate about us and about the creation that he has made and about evil that wrecks that creation as well. God is passionately involved with his creation and the human race. What we do and say to each other matters to God. And God's sense of justice demands that there would be an end to this kind of violence physical and verbal violence. And sometimes that justice requires action on God's part, action that will be experienced as hateful or destructive to those who are actually practicing wickedness. They're going to perceive that as being hateful or abhorrent. 
<clears throat> now, for us, our response to evil in the world, um, David requests that God banish evildoers or otherwise punish them. And it's true, God hates evil and demands justice. But justice and judgment are God's to give, not ours. And David recognizes this. He offers his words of anger. All those, that's those seven words for evil. He describes those and offers those to God, but he doesn't himself act on them. He gives them over to God to act on. Um, his, his desire for revenge and punishment of his enemies, he places before God. Remember, he places his request before God as if he were offering a request to a king. Um, so in David's case, at least in Psalm 5 here, David himself is saying, this is what I wish would happen. I'm going to lay it out before you, God, and I'd release it to you. You act on it however you see fit. Um, so um, the fact that we can be honest with God, I think, is one thing we can take away from Psalm 5. Um, so when we're hurt, when we're angry, when we've been abused, feel like we've been abused, uh, with words, um, we can lay that out to God. We can be honest with God. Tell Him how we're feeling. Um, tell God how you've been hurt by these people or what has been said or what has been not said about you. Um, they can kind of be a counterbalance to these hard truths. The fact that God has a, eventually has a hard line against, takes a hard line against evil. But the way that God wants to do that is up to God and not up to us. Um, when we look at that um, that way, I think it helps us do it in a way that is true to what Christ taught and modeled for us and the overall message of the Bible. And so if we get hung up on talking about God being one of hatred or abhorrence or something like that, when we look at the bigger picture and go back to some of the central uh, verses in the psalm, we see that God's, remember we talked about God's central, essential characteristic being one of chesed, one of loving kindness. His loving kindness requires justice as well. And justice is going to look like hatred to some people who are practicing wickedness and evil. Verses 7 to 8, right there in the middle of the psalm, again, that kind of helps interpret what happens, what comes before and what comes afterwards. I, by your great love, your steadfast love, can come into your house. In reverence, I bow down toward your holy temple. And lead me, Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Remember, those are the keys to understanding this whole verse or this whole psalm. God's essential nature and defining characteristic is great love or steadfast love. And his response to evil has to be seen in light of this central defining characteristic. So when David or we ourselves call for vengeance, God will act in justice. And justice can be seen as the reverse side or the, same, the same reverse side of the same coin as God's mercy and God's compassion as well. So our response then is also to follow God's lead. David asked, lead me in the way, lead me in your way. And if we follow David's advice, we too will follow God's lead in seeking justice. Um, justice, not revenge, is the way of God, way of God's righteousness. And Psalm 5 can also be a reminder, even though we ourselves may not be facing enemies right now, um, it reminds us that we have some connection to those people who are facing uh, times of trouble, um, facing crises in their lives. We have a responsibility to stand with all of God's children, even those who are facing terrible times, even when we're not. God's justice calls us to offer forgiveness of those who perpetuate evil against us and for us to help those who are also facing injustice as well.
in our desire for, revenge, for vengeance and revenge, we have to practice justice following God. That's our first problem. That was a theological problem. The second problem we have to face is one of ethics. How do we live honestly in a culture that is full of false narratives and fake news, more lies than there is truth? Well, Professor Barrett's article kind of gives us a, a few clues. Uh, her, her, talking about violence language, she said, here, here's a quote that we read already, political climate in which groups of people endlessly hurl hateful words at one another. That fits our current situation, doesn't it? Uh, rude and abusive language fills our Facebook pages and our Twitter feeds. Um, and not only coarse language, but untrue language. Fake news, false narratives are full in the daily headlines. And they come in such, so fast and in such volume that we can't keep up with sorting out what's true, what's not true, what's spoken out of ignorance, which is understandable sometimes because someone doesn't really know. Or maybe it's inf- misinformation that they've received that they don't know any better. Or it could be downright lies. Whichever. Um, we have to sort that out and figure out which, what's, where's the truth in this. And when we get bombarded with so much fake stuff, um, it's, hard, it's hard to keep up with that process. Now, <clears throat> I don't want to offend or upset anybody unnecessarily, but I don't think there's any way to avoid it um, in our current situation. I can't avoid mentioning at least one person who exemplifies everything we've read about in Psalm 5 pertaining to these false and deceitful words. person who habitually lies at the drop of a hat about anything and everything. He lies to hide the bad things that he's done. He lies about the good things he hasn't done. He lies to make himself look good, and he lies to make other people look bad. His lies hurt other people. And in short, he's the biggest liar I know of. And I hesitate to even call him a man because he has all the manners and the demeanor and the impulsiveness of a little boy. I'm talking about this character. Yeah, Pinocchio, have you seen the movie? Have you read the story? You know the moral of the story. Pinocchio tells lies. His nose grows longer. Um... He's never going to become a human like he wants to be. He's a, just a little wooden puppet. Pinocchio means little pine head in Italian. He's, little, he's a little wooden head. And he can't become human like he wants to because he's dealing with this issue of lying. He can't help himself. And Pinocchio, of course, in the story, represents all of us, doesn't he? That's the moral of the story. We've all told lies. We've lied to hide things we've done, lied about things, good things that we haven't done. We lie to make ourselves look better. We lie to make other people look bad. Our lies hurt others. Lying makes makes us less human, and it cheapens the humanity of those to whom we lie and about whom we lie. So going back to our verse in Psalm, Psalm 5-7, it calls us to humbly rely on God's chesed, his great love, his great mercy, that will lead us in the way of God's righteousness. The Apostle Paul wrote about this in his letter to the church in Ephesus. Listen to how many, much of his instructions to that church deals with words that we speak and the inner motives, the heart motives behind those words. This comes from Ephesians 4, verses 22 to 32. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we're all members of one body. 
In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. And do not let anything unwholesome come out of your mouths, only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it would benefit, benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive each other, just as Christ and God forgave you. Wise words, maybe it helps us deal with this ethical dilemma of how we're supposed to live in a world of falsehoods. I have one last word phrase. We had six, but now we have to have seven, right? Because that's a perfect number. Uh, This sums up David's overall prayer. It's a phrase, actually. It's called brutal reality, prevailing hope. I came across this idea in a book that I read, actually helped edit, um, which relays a story told in another book, a famous book in business circles. I don't know if you've read any leadership material by Jim Collins, but he wrote the book Good to Great. And in that book, he tells a story of Admiral James Stockdale, who was a high-ranking admiral during the Vietnam War. He was shot down and captured by the North Vietnamese and imprisoned in the Hanoi Hilton, one of the most notorious prisons during the whole war. And because he was such a high-ranking officer, they figured that he had to have lots of good intel. And so he was tortured uh, endlessly to get out as much information as they could get out of him. When he was released, finally, he, he lived. Uh, when he was released in 1973, he could barely walk, and it took him years to recuperate and recover. But when he did, he became deeply involved in government, in nonprofit organizations, and in civic life altogether, and led a full and wonderful life as well. So Jim Collins, this business author, author interviewed him and wanted to know what was it that kept you alive during those terrible years in prison, and how did you survive when other people didn't? Um, so here's, here's how it, it, it's phrased or described in, in this book, The Jesus-Centered Life, based on Collins' interview with Stockdale. He asked Stockdale how he managed to not only make it out of the Hanoi Hilton with an unbroken spirit, but how he'd been able to live a productive, vigorous life after he was released. Talk, Stockdale responded, I never lost faith in the end of the story. I never doubted not only that I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn the experience into the defining event of my life, which in retrospect, I would not trade. Stockdale's response was so profound that Collins made it the center of one of his most popular business leadership books, Good to Great. Collins translated the vice admiral's key to surviving and thriving in the midst of unendurable circumstances into something that he, Collins, called the Stockdale Paradox. And here it is. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they may be. So later on, Collins asked Stockdale about those who didn't come out alive. And he said those were the ones who were optimists. They always thought they would be out by Christmas. But when Christmas came and went, they weren't. Maybe we'll be out by Easter. No, it came and went. Well, maybe by the fall. No, they were still there. The next Christmas came and went, and they were still there. And so eventually they died, what, Colin, or what Stockdale says, they died of a broken heart because they weren't facing reality. 
He could, and he did, and that's how he says he survived. Um, so here's another phrase that he put together. He says, to experience true freedom, it's necessary for us to embrace both our brutal realities and our prevailing hope at the same time. So as David was facing the same kind of situation, he was on the run in danger of his life. He was facing that brutal reality, and he called it for what it was. He had those seven words for evil, but yet he had hope and faith in God's ultimate um, victory, and he felt that he would prevail. He faced persistent opposition. That was his brutal reality, but he held on to that unshakable hope and the enduring joy that he looked forward to which remind us of what Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in the midst of an idolatrous and immoral culture. He gave guidance to them on how to participate in receiving communion. And he talked about that in words like this. He said that whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. So what Paul was advising the Corinthians to do was when you remember what happened, what Christ did for you in the past, Think about what's going to come because we also have faith that Christ will return in victory as well. And every time you receive communion, you're proclaiming both his death and his return as well. And that is an expression of faith and confidence and hope. Now, communion is an act in which we remember the brutal reality of Jesus' crucifixion. We do that every week here. And we remember the sin that he took on to himself in order to redeem us in the world. But communion is much more than just remembrance. It's an actual sacrament in which God's grace comes to us. And it's an act of hope, an unshakable conviction that not death, but that life will prevail. And that we can live free from the damaging effects of abusive or violent words that have been used against us or words that we have spoken to other people. We can be confident that God will hear our prayers for healing and for forgiveness. And that's grounds for the joy that we have in Jesus Christ. The fact that God's kingdom has come and it is now coming still, and it will come in its fullness when Christ returns, bringing with him the new heavens and the new earth. So let's do that together. Let's act on that. Let's prepare to receive communion, shall we?